This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This week, two writers explore the lives of two women. One, a memoir poetry collection about her mother, and the other, an original play based on love letters from 100 years ago. Both emotionally beautiful pay-ends to life and love through the ages, and both so fascinating that it was hard to squeeze them into a single hour. We have no time to waste. November is Alzheimer's Awareness Month, and there can be few of us who have not felt some ripple of grief that dementia or Alzheimer's sets in motion, maybe directly through a parent, a close relative or partner's diagnosis, or indirectly through watching a friend navigate the devastating progress of the disease in someone close to them. For my guest, poet Barbara Harris-Leonard, Alzheimer's stole her mother, Barbara Montgomery Harris, who died on April 3rd, 2016, at the age of 89, after battling Alzheimer's for at least 13 years. For those who care for a loved one with the disease, it is a fraught and complicated journey of grief, disintegration, conflicting emotions that ricochet between love and fear, obligation and exhaustion. When it afflicts your own parent, you watch your rock erode, the life you shared together fragmenting slowly until the person before you is neither recognisable to you nor themselves. I know this only too well. My father developed vascular dementia as a result of multiple small strokes. The man who had so proudly loved and cared for me and lifted me up into the world ended his life as helpless as a baby. And I wondered constantly, what kind of daughter am I who lives across an ocean? For Barbara Harris-Leonard, poetry was a way to grieve. She describes herself as a poet weaver, searching deep within herself to excavate the feelings that need to be exposed to the light so that each facet of her grief can be reassembled into words. As she writes, grief is a beautiful jewel with cutting edges, a diamond with its own symmetry. And last month saw the publication of her collection of poems about her relationship with her mother, their deep mother-daughter connection, and as she says, the unresolved pain of their mother wounds. The collection is titled Three Penny Memories, a poetic memoir, and I am so delighted that Barbara Leonard is here to talk about her book and her writing. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Barbara. Oh, thank you, Diana. I'm really pleased to be here, and you your introduction was beautiful. Well, thank it you. It brought tears to my eyes. Well, your book brought tears to my eyes, so there we go. We're <laughs> oh. quits now. <laughs> okay, now we're ha- now we're even. <laughs> we're even. You cover so much ground in this collection, and in many ways, it feels like a work of narrative nonfiction as much as a book of poetry. As you take us to so many parts of your life that I feel like I must have known you for years. Wow. Do you feel like a storyteller whose medium is poetry or a poet who tells stories? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's a good question. The editor of Freeverse Revolution calls me a storyteller. So since she publishes poetry, maybe I'm both. <laughs> <laughs> I originally did a storyboard 
I was thinking I would write a memoir in prose, but I just kept collecting poems. And so I think I'm both, but I'm not sure if I'm one, more one than the other. It is definitely a medium that you excel in. You have a beautiful way of telling a full story using such concise, beautiful language. Oh, thank you. You know, our mothers were both born in 1927. So themselves children of mothers of the Victorian age, a time when you kept your emotions to yourself and you just got on with it. And we, of course, live in an age that is so different. We are encouraged to share our emotions, to be open and honest about our feelings. And sometimes I feel my mother wincing at how much we put out there. And I wonder whether you sense your mother's thoughts on your own poetry about her. Oh, yes. (laughs) I always try to sense into what she might be thinking if she were sitting next to me. She was always supportive of my poetry, both she and my dad were. And I feel because the book works toward forgiveness and, you know, it's a love story. Mm. So I just have a feeling she would be very happy with it. But, you know, it's hard to know, you know. (laughs) She was always a proud mother of her kids. Were you able to read any to her while she was still alive? I think I did most of the writing after she died, actually. So when she died... 2016, I was still working full-time and gradually helping her more and more and more and more. And then after she died, I decided I would retire the next year. And that's when I got my WordPress blog set up and I started really putting more attention to my writing. Poems just started pouring out about her more and more. And then when I realized, I think, oh, I might have enough for a book... I started thinking about making that a goal. And I took a course called Memoir Writing, Inc., I-N-K. It was taught online by Alison Waring. She's a famous memoirist. And she wasn't teaching poetic memoir, but she taught me how to put a memoir together. So that's how what I did in my book. Had you been writing poetry all your life, or were you writing narratively? Mostly narratively, but I... I started playing around with writing when I was age eight, and, and my parents would actually have me read poetry to their friends. <laughs> so I started doing readings when I was a, a little kid, but with school and work and then, you know, uh, everything, I always tend to put so much into, I would put so much into my job. And then helping my mother, I, I gave up a lot of social life to help my mother mm. because I also had work to do. So yeah, I started writing at age eight and then... I started publishing in college, but not very much, not till after I retired. Well, there were so many components to the story of your journey through life, choices that were made not by you before you were born, but that changed your own life, a life-threatening illness that altered your childhood, all of which influence how the light refracts on your memories of your mother and and your role as her end-of-life caregiver. And I would love for you to read for us the very first poem in the book, Excavating the Heart Wall of Grief, which is a beautiful introduction to the three chapters in your memoir titled Light, Dust and Echo. Would you read it for us? Thank you. Excavating the Heart Wall of Grief I excavate my soul, salvage the shards that comprise my mosaic, brush away the shades of a soiled past, striking something hard. I coax it loose, examine it, toss it aside. 
Some fragments yield to my touch, others cut. I must dredge the diamantine dark to dismantle the heart wall of grief, even if there is bloodletting. Mother's sorrow inherited from her mother, the law of abandoned excavations, some artifacts buried so deep that the air there coughs up afflictions. I'm the mandala passed down from mother to daughter, mother to daughter, mother to daughter. But I have no daughters, no lineage. My mother's unwitting mistake. Bad medicine stole my womb. Can I transmute the loss into a healing salve? As I break down the walls, other stories tumble out. My childhood illness and a miscarriage. Our near deaths, broken wombs, secrets aslant. The arcs of two lives stretch into a double rainbow. A mother-daughter love story, the hue of copper. The expanse into light, dust, and echo. Tell us a little bit about that work. This actually started out as a long prose introduction, and I trimmed it down into this poem. I was just thinking about how the heart wall of grief is that barrier we put up to hide our our sorrow. And uh, Carl Jung said, whatever lies buried will project out as anger. And so I liked, I was thinking about how in order for me to get to the root of the grief, and also the answer to my uncle's question, do you love your mother, which really prompted the whole book and the whole journey, me thinking about my mother and my love for her, I had to go inside. And so I wanted to get through the rubble and take down that wall, you know, emotions, grief, loss, whatever could be revealed. Reveal to heal is one of my slogans. I knew it would be painful. It would. There would be bloodletting. There would be facing oneself, because I, you know, one thing I feared was that this book would offend people because I'm here, my mother's suffering from Alzheimer's, and when I do a reading, some poems actually make people cry, but some poems actually make them laugh, and that tragic and comedic elements work together quite well in art, I think, and um, so I just saw this poem as a symbolic prologue, saying I'm ready to go inside and do the work I need to do in order to answer my uncle's question, which which was the trigger for this memoir. Right, that is my next question for you is the catalyst for the book is the question that your favorite uncle asked you, which seems so out of left field, so shocking. Yes. And ultimately you seek counseling and the question was simply, do you love your mother? Right. Which is such a strange question. Tell me about that moment. Yes. Well, I called my uncle to tell him, Mom's decided to move here. I, I asked Mom, I said, please pick a child. <laughs> you have seven kids. Pick a child that you can live close to, who can help you, you know. And so it just came to the point she had to choose a kid. And so she chose to come here. And I was really happy. And so I was telling him I was really happy. And then all of a sudden he says, Barbara, do you love your mother? And I was caught taken aback. You know what? That was sort of left field. And he said it twice. And I, I said, you know, I had to think, will he believe my answer? You know, I said, yes, of course. But maybe he wanted to know if I would take care of her, mm. you know. 
I don't know. I mean, I was obviously very happy <laughs> and relieved that she was coming. So the question was really out of left field. Well, you have two poems in the collection yeah. which kind of hang on this question. And I wondered if you would read for us one of those. And I chose the one daughter like mother. Yeah, this is a good poem to be early in the book. It's a, a little bit of a summary. Daughter like mother. Mother and I were very uh, entwined and tangled, similar and yet different. And yet, you know, and also there are three maladies in the book, measles encephalitis, which she helped me through as a, when I was six going on seven. Then later Alzheimer's and I helped her. And both of those brain injuries involve memory loss. And then also when I was in utero, she was prescribed diethylstilbestrol, DES. It was prescribed for women spotting to prevent miscarriages. Well, it actually never did prevent a miscarriage, but it did ruin the daughters and sons who were born. They had cancer scares, malformed reproductive organs, and a lot of other after effects. So this poem refers to, the, to three maladies as well. Daughter like mother. Do you love her? Those haunting words. I seek counseling. Grief awaits cure. List life traumas. Where to begin? Grief emerges in the young. With birth there is loss. Mom's swaddling womb, my evictor. A shy child, I am clinging, tremulous. Have panic attacks in the first grade. I'm six going on seven. Measles encephalitis cripples. Paralysis, coma, and a near death. Heaven says no. My second birth, into a wheelchair, isolation, loneliness. Grief, heavy, bearing, brittle seed in earth's womb. I'm trapped in the chair. From mom, the gumption to walk again when doctors said no. Brain damage, aftermath of encephalitis, tears, constant crying, problems with learning. I lack confidence, withdraw. Bullies torment me. Mom, my comforter. I look back at this viral swelling plague, many memories extinguished. I can relate, Mom, to how histories crumble, how memories burn off like the dew and hot sun. Our paths align. You held me, now I hold you. And we should point out that this is before the time when a measles vaccine was available, because this happened to you in the 1950s. So as soon as the vaccines for polio and measles rubella and all that came out my parents were first in line to make sure all their kids were vaccinated and to this day I get all my vaccinations because I still have PTSD from that illness right before we dive into the poems that reflect on your mother's Alzheimer's I want to go back in time to you as a child and, and when you began to write your father was a college professor and a poet and like you said earlier your parents used to ask you to read your poems to the mm. dinner guests which I just love that you get to perform your poems before yeah. going to bed where did your love of writing start well at age eight I was I felt compelled to write and I, I've talked to many writers who at that age seemed to kind of turn on to it maybe from reading my parents reading stories to me but also when I was sick with encephalitis, I did have a near-death experience. And the, there's poetry in there about 
thinking I was with my grandfather, mm. who was dying in the same hospital, and being told by these beings, go back to your room. I, and I say, I want to go with him. No, go back to your room. He was dying. I think that maybe in some way we were, this sounds bizarre, met in a coma. I don't know. But I was standing and talking to him, but I knew at that point I couldn't. I, I think I went into a coma is why my parents put me in the hospital, because my next memory was waking up out of the coma, and um, being able to talk but not walk. So that was you know, maybe more than a dream. I don't know. But then I just felt like I wanted to express certain thoughts, you know, like that I was inspired to write or tell people, and I think that had an effect on my brain or something. And maybe I had some problems learning, but I think I, I wanted to try, you know, to write because... It was hard for me to learn after the encephalitis. You have several works in the chapter, Light, which explore this time of illness with measles encephalitis. And I wonder, when you were a child and you were writing your works, did you write about that time? And how much do these contemporary poems incorporate memories that you had archived from the works you wrote as a child versus your adult recollections of that time? At the time, I was confused. I was really too young to understand what had happened to me. It wasn't in my full consciousness. I was still healing even after I came home from the hospital and after I taught myself to walk again. I was still healing emotionally. I didn't understand why I had so much trouble in school. So I, I really wasn't conscious. It took for years. I replayed this whole experience over and over in my in my mind. And after I retired and I had time I started doing some uh, memoir writing about it and published some essays about measles encephalitis and also Alzheimer's with my mom. I, so I did some memoir writing. I really didn't process it fully until I could retire, which is odd. But the the trauma, I, I never could forget the trauma and it just kept replaying over and over in my mind. And so I wanted to make sense of it because it struck me I always thought about my dream with my grandfather, and I thought, but then it hit me as in, you know, once I could put my mind on it and not mom and my work and family. But I thought, wait a minute, you know, I couldn't talk. I couldn't stand by his bed. That very vivid experience was not, you know, happening in, on this plane, you know. The next poem I would love to have you read. Well, I had a choice of two because I couldn't decide between them. They both really look at, as you said, that entanglement with your mother, the trauma that you both went through at this time and how she cared for you at that time. There's one called The Bear Went Over the Mountain and there's one called This Brittle Seed. Which of those would you like to read? The Bear Went Over the Mountain is more concrete and the, This Brittle Seed is uh, it's more symbolic. So I don't know. If you want something more memoir-like or more symbolic, I could... <laughs> Let's get more um, memoir-like, and that's in the okay, title of the, the book. Okay, the bear went over the mountain. Yeah, this is more like a story. In my book, I have animals, and I think of a bear. Bears uh, are protective, like especially mother bears. The bear went over the mountain. One, a month-long coma from encephalitis. I awaken in a cold, searing light. A man in white. Am I dead? The bear went over the mountain. Say it, dear. The bear went over the mountain. She'll be fine. The needles pricking my legs can't make them move. 
Mother always believes a doctor's prognosis, but she won't walk again. Two, I never consider mom's ability to be at my side daily, yet still care for her three other children, one a baby. The storybooks, her gifts of ice cream cones. One day I trick her into giving up both cones. I ask for the chocolate one, her choice. Then delight in the licorice one, eating both so fast that the ice cream doesn't melt, like my gratitude does. Three, mom, my she-bear, her quick bite. She growls, claws off the strangers who enter my room and loom over my paralyzed body. Claws at the impatient nurse who leaves me on the toilet for two hours. Mom never complains about my level of care. Instead, she holds me in my despair. Hmm. One of the signatures of compelling writing is turmoil and the search for resolution without conflict. There's no story to tell. And your memoir is such a rich kaleidoscope of human emotion. And I, I wonder what epiphanies revealed themselves to you as you put this collection together? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I think, you know, as I was exploring, I was, I was so impressed in a way. I, I knew all these things about my mother and me, but when I started thinking about them as a poet and a writer, and I thought, you know, these three maladies bring together so many interesting comparisons between us you know I always say like we we were either in dance or flight you know and the whole concept of the mother wound I realized how deep it was in both of us because she um, and this was one thing about the book that I had I struggled with whether or not to to refer to her her freshman year in college and her you know, she got pregnant, she had to have an abortion, because in the 1940s, that was the option. Women weren't really given a choice, I don't think, or at least her parents didn't give her a choice. She was pro-life, and I think that that really bothered her her whole life, that that happened. And I tried to talk to her about it, but she wouldn't. But she went on to have seven kids, and I couldn't have any because of the DES, I had a misshapen uterus. It was a T-shape. And so I I actually had a miscarriage, very painful. And I could, so I, while she could have bear many children, I could not. And she had this expectation in me that I would, that I would give her a lot of grandchildren, I think. And, and I told her, you know, I don't blame you for this. You follow the doctor's orders. But what really hurt, and I reveal it in one poem, I think, so that this was the deepest wound, was that she somehow forgot, and this was even before a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, way before, but she kind of made me feel bad because I I was childless. Hmm. And she had told me many years, especially when I was in childbearing years, that people who don't have kids are selfish. So she was raised with this expectation. It's a social thing, social pressure, you know. So that's what hurt me. And I had to really work on that because here I was constantly reminded, while I'm a daughter taking care of my mother, who's going to take care of me, (laughs) you know? But that was something that kept digging into me. So I decided I'm going to go ahead and keep those poems because that's where the heart wall, you know, that's the biggest thing behind the heart wall is what I didn't want to swallow that grief to protect her. 
I wanted it to come out and be healed so that I could love her even more, you know, so that I could forgive her, you know. And maybe she was jealous because I was getting college degree and going to grad school. And she couldn't do those things. I have that poem in the last part of the book, Mom's Dreams. So her kids were her dreams. She had dreams, but she ended up making her kids her dreams. Where I had a public life, she had a private life in a way, you know. Well, there are so many heart-wrenching works about the progression of your mother's Alzheimer's that it's impossible to pick just one. There's stories about finding her somewhere to live, the road trip from hell, the confusions, <laughs> dealing with care homes and doctors. I wonder which of the many poems for you captures best that time and, and if you would read one of those for us. We could read Mom's Pickles. Okay, let's do Mom's Pickles. It's kind of lighthearted, and we've been talking. Okay, Mom's Pickles. So, you know, here I am. I'm working full-time. Teaching English as a second language in our program was just very intense. And I taught writing, so I would also, also have a lot of grading. But I would get home, and the answering machine would be beeping. This is called Mom's Pickles. Mom said, I used to take care of you. Now you take care of me. That's my epigraph. The answering machine impatiently beeps like an ambulance siren. Message one. The caller's voice drones. Hun, I'm in a pickle. <sighs> My insurance dropped me. Oh, the girl didn't come again today. Call me. Click. No, oh, there would be these deep sighs. Okay. Message two. I hear a sigh. Hello, hon, I'm in a pickle. The checkbook's missing. And I'm diabetic, just found out. Call me, click. Message three. The voice catches. Hello, hon, it's mom. I'm in a pickle. There was a man in my room last night. At the foot of my bed. Call me, click. And is this when she is living in assisted living, or this is when she's still at home? She was in independent living, so she had an apartment. And the thing is, the door was supposed to be locked in terms of the guy who showed up in her room. And then they had a security person who would check the doors. But I don't know how her door became unlocked unless she left the room and returned and didn't lock it, and he never checked again. I don't know. It's hard to know. My dad used to talk about the bedroom boys. The bedroom boys were here last night. And we're like, well, what did the bedroom boys do? They, they took my money. Okay, oh, yeah. The bedroom boys. We never knew who the bedroom boys were. But. Right. So your collection is called Three Penny Memories. Tell me about the title. Right. So the title, when mom was at the end of life, so some siblings were coming to be with her, which was really beautiful. So I was with two brothers. We were running to get some lunch, and I opened the car door, and there on the asphalt were three bright, shiny pennies lined up in a perfect row. It was just, if I had taken a, a ruler, I could have measured it all. <laughs> I, I could kind of hear my mother saying, pick them up, pick them up. And I said back, no, I'm not going to, because that was how we would kind of squabble. So she would end up picking up pennies I refused to pick up. So... I thought, if someone had dropped these pennies, they wouldn't land in a perfect row. And who would take time on a parking lot to line up three pennies? <laughs> so, but I 
I knew that maybe there was some message here for me because I'm a poet, I think, in symbols. But I didn't pick up the pennies because I was, I didn't want to accept the message. And then it turned out she died on April 3rd. Mm. And when I was taking the memoir class, Ellison Waring taught us to put our memoir into a container, you know, have a theme. So I thought, well, you know, there's a lot of threes in my book. And that three penny thing was was very traumatic and meaningful. So I decided to call it Three Penny Memories. And I thought that's a, I didn't know if I'd like the title, but I picked it. And then I realized all the threes in the book, the three maladies, um, the nurses, if they asked mom three times and she refused three times, they wouldn't give her a shower or change her clothes um, and that kind of thing. So all these little threes kept coming out in the book. Mm. As I journeyed with you through the book, there was one question that seemed to remain unresolved, and, and that was, why did your uncle ask you? I wondered if you'd ever had that conversation with him, why he said, your mother, hun, do you love her? I know. I was too scared to ask him. I, I was afraid to ask him because I was afraid maybe I had done something wrong and my mom had told him or I disappointed her in some way. Even when he, he'd come to visit two or three times, I never asked him because I didn't want to bring up anything unpleasant. <laughs> but a kind of uh, inner feeling I have is that maybe he asked it to make me think, to remind me how important loving her was at this point in her life. Maybe. Yeah. But I remember saying to her, <laughs> You know, Mom, you know, maybe one day I'll come and, and you'll say, oh, you're so much nicer than my daughter, Barbara. And she said, oh, I don't ever think I would say that. I would never mean to hurt you. Mm. So I wrote a poem about that. It's in the last part of the book. It is. And I looked at that one, but actually I chose for our final reading, I chose the one next to it, which is called Farewell, My Flower, which is so elegic and a nice ending. Yeah, I really like this poem. Farewell, my flower. How short was your stay? I took you for granted, promised I would stop by more often. I was too caught up in my mindless days to sit with you in your garden. Your lush blooms made the sun smile. Your poise, your grace, holy gifts. Even when the snow surprised us all, you held your back up your crown never drooping, your resilience tricked me into complacency. Still you danced, until your beauty crumbled into the beds of periwinkle, huddled to catch you, until the breeze gently blew your ash into soil. That really speaks to me about just time missed, time away. We have our lives and we, in my case, live in different continents and and then when the end comes, you feel guilty about that time that you right. didn't spend with them. 
Well, Barbara Harris Leonard's collection of poetry, Three Penny Memories, a poetic memoir, is published by Experiments in Fiction and is available at Skylark Bookshop. And you can also connect with Barbara via her website, extraordinarysunshineweaver.blog. Barbara, thank you so much for the honesty and the raw truths of your collection and for sharing it with the world. It's an act of bravery. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Oh, thank you, Diane. Thank you for this great interview. I appreciate you. As my friends all know, I love a good rabbit hole. Stories that take you on twists and turns through history with lots of side plots and tangents that lure you away from the main story so that suddenly you look up and hours have gone by and you're travelling across Russia on the Trans-Siberian Express wrapped in furs accompanied by a snoozing Russian general in a red-lined cape coat. I digress, but only just. So when Greenhouse Theatre Project Executive Director Elizabeth Broughton-Palmieri got in touch about the upcoming original Greenhouse production, she said, you're really going to like diving into this one. And she was not wrong. The name Olive Gilbraith McClorn is possibly familiar to anyone who follows Missouri women's history or who visits homes that are on the historic register, homes such as the 1896 Queen Anne-style Gilbraith McClorn residence in La Plata. But it is the story, the personal story of Olive Gilbraith McClorn, her travels in China and Tsarist Russia in the 19-teens and 20s, her career as a novelist and essayist, her movement within the aristocratic social circles of imperial Russia just prior to the Bolshevik Revolution, and most specifically her mysterious love affair with a dapper St. Petersburg-born British banker and widower, 20 years her senior, that is the inspiration inspiration for Elizabeth's original work titled Mo Love, Letters from the Archive. The work has been devised by Elizabeth in collaboration with the State Historical Society of Missouri, which let her delve into the archives and read two boxes of love letters Olive bequeathed to the society upon her death in 1981. Letters between Olive and William Lewis Cazalet. And here to whet our appetites for the love story of Olive and William is Elizabeth. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Diana. This is such a tasty and fascinating story (laughs) that even at the distance of, for me, of researching Olive in preparation for talking to you, I could feel the pull of the historical vortex. And I can only imagine how it is for you. Do you look up from your work and feel surprised that it's not 1918? (laughs) You know, I do get so sucked in when I'm working on a project and I'm such a romantic (laughs) that, you know, I'm a sucker for the classics. And so I really do like, uh, I just immerse myself in the whole world. And and I love when you said tasty, because that is like (laughs) a perfect image for me. This is all just very tasty. (laughs) So before we get into Olive, tell me how, first of all, how this all came about. It's kind of a cool story, actually. Um, So Beth Pike and Heather Richmond from Shishmo, from the State Historical Society of Missouri, reached out to me almost two years ago now. And they said, hey, we have these letters that were donated by a notable Missourian woman. You might want to check them out. You might be interested. We think that you might be willing to do something with them. And I was kind of, you know, it was the middle of the pandemic and 
I was producing things on Zoom at the time. And I normally this is something I would just say, oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> but I was just in a different direction at that moment. And finally, when I did pivot and allow myself to read through some of the material they sent me, I immediately knew, okay, well, this obviously has to go to the top of my pile of things to do. (laughs) But what I didn't realize was that the research alone is what took me the longest part Mm -hmm. through this process. So the actual construction and writing of the piece is a very like sliver of, of the whole process for me. The rest of it was just diving into the world of Olive. And like I said, visiting the archives on the top floor of the beautiful building in downtown Columbia and sitting in this quiet space, it's much like a library, although you can't bring drinks in there and you can only have pencils. <laughs> and just, uh, yeah, like you said, opening these two boxes full of hundreds of handwritten letters. Oh, wow. Hundreds. Hundreds. Very exciting. So before we get into the love story, I mean, Olive Gilbraith is an incredibly fascinating person, particularly for the age that she lived in. So tell us a little bit about the adventuresome Olive Gilbraith. Mm-hmm. The words I think of specifically when I think of all of our, she's ambitious, independent, adventurer. These are things that wrap her up. 1915, she was in her early 30s living in La Plata, where she was born and raised with her family. She was raised by people who were notable and had money. And so she was living a quaint life there, but she wanted education. She wanted to be a writer. She wanted a world bigger than what she had in La Plata. And so she just decided to do it. And independently, she set out a little formula for how she was going to become a writer. <laughs> and and she really saw it through, which is, to me, at that stage in the game in 1915, was, was kind of remarkable. And she traveled hugely too, right? She went everywhere, really, truly. But originally, she traveled in Great Britain and France and, and Sweden, so around Scandinavia. And then she went back again, and, and it broadened. So then she went to Asia and Egypt and more of Europe. And then she went back and she went to Russia. And Russia is where she then met William. But her travels weren't going to stop there. She wanted to be a travel writer. That is what she really sought out to be. She was so taken with the the romantic idea of, like you said, <laughs> riding on a train, you know what I mean? And just the, a, any creative person knows when you're on a walk or you're on a train or you're in a kind of a quiet, mysterious place, this is where the ideas can can live and breathe in your mind. And I think that she was very much so a storyteller, but she really needed experience, life experience to write from. And that is something that I kind of focus on in my play is that no matter how creative I think she was, she really knew that she needed to live a bigger life and, and have experiences and be kind of thrust into maybe discomfort, which is what travel does to you sometimes, Mm. um, in order to really push her to challenge her. And she was hungry for it. 
She wrote two novels, Miss Americanka in 1918, which was serialised in Harper's Magazine, and another novel in 1926 called If Today Have No Tomorrow, which details the Russian Revolution, how it affected an aristocratic Russian family. And that work has been described as a masterpiece and compared to the Nobel Prize for Literature winning book, Dr. Zhivago, even though that came out 20 years after her book. Her work is fascinating. What what have you read of her writing? I'm guessing you've read both her books. Yeah, so I've read both of them. I, I'm going to be totally honest. I haven't like page by page read them. I kind of did this thing that I would do oftentimes in college. I'd read the beginning, the the, the beginning of the book, the middle of the book, and the end of the book. <laughs> And uh, I mean, my time is a little challenged right now with a, with a couple kids at home. And really just, I could have probably spent way more time just doing the research. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it was just like the history nerd in me just really enjoyed that. And, and I, and I'm a writer. And so I love that process too, but I could have, I could have stayed in that other world for a little longer. So, so reading these books, it was really fun to finally see her writing because all of these letters I've been reading are from him, from his perspective. We don't have any of her letters right. to him, obviously. And truthfully, he destroyed a lot of them because there were periods of their relationship where, you know, he was was upset with her and he would just, you know, destroy things. And it was tumultuous. It really was. But what, what I'd been reading was everything coming from his perspective. Mm. And so it was really refreshing when I actually <laughs> could read her and her words and, and her imagery of her experiences abroad. Because really, truly, both of those books were written from her experiences traveling and that is that was what she set out to accomplish she was a masterful writer her writing is lush and richly detailed evocative and really vivid in description of place and moment and mood and so obviously one presumes her letters were equally beautiful and not just oh hey love weather great school sucks dad getting over a cold I mean that's not her letter so talk to me about the challenge of mimicking Olive's literary voice in the work that you produced yes I I think that she was funny um you know that's something that you don't it's hard to extract from some of these very like heavy dramatic works of fiction. I say fiction with a question mark because yeah. they were more true than fiction. Yeah. And so anyone who is willing to uproot themselves in the time that she did, I mean, think about it. It was World War One, and she's traveling around Russia. It's the Russian Revolution. It was not the safest time. And she was up for it. She was up for the challenge. So I just think that she had a, a huge spirit and she was brilliant at conversation. And she's someone that I, I wish I could sit down with right now and just have a glass of wine with and, and <laughs> chat up, you know what I mean? It would be such such a joy. But because we don't have that, I've had to create this perfect olive in my mind. And is she perfect? She's not not perfect. I'm, I'm definitely trying to expose her flaws in this piece, because, you know, we are all horribly flawed, but also because I am trying to see it from William's perspective as well. And so from the letters, you know, from what we have from him, 
I'm kind of making out what her letters said. So it's kind of a puzzle, really. It's like him answering sometimes Mm. what she wrote to him. A lot of it are his thoughts and feelings and also descriptions of what's happening in his life and his world there that's kind of crumbling around him. But the fact that she won't just come be with him and be his wife in the way that he wants, that tells me something about her. You know, she loves him and she continues this relationship for almost 20 years, but um, something keeps her on track for what she is is trying to do with her life. And And I have a lot of respect for this woman, but I also wonder, you know, really what, what was going on with her, why, why she was so desperate to, to be on her own. I'm curious about, like you say, you're reading William's letters to her, her letters to him are gone. And so you are having to extrapolate into those gaps based on things that he's saying. Were there mysteries within that? And you thought, I have no idea what's going on right now in this moment of their relationship. Oh, yeah. And you know, what's fascinating to me is so they numbered their letters Mm. so they could tell when one went astray. And sometimes letters would take months to get to each other. She was moving around all over the place and he was sending letters wherever he kind of knew of her whereabouts at the time. But sometimes he would miss her. Sometimes she'd moved on to a new location. Sometimes their letters were um, not matching emotionally. So maybe you feel one way and then you don't get this letter from another person until three months later. So think of what you've done in your head, what you've created in your head in those three months where you don't know where that other person is emotionally and how they're feeling about you at that time. So because of that, there was a lot of distress placed on the relationship and a lot of misunderstandings. It's kind of like texting today. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like if you're trying to communicate, really communicate with someone, texting is not great because you cannot hear a tone of voice. You cannot like, you know, understand uh, sarcasm as well, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we do have emojis, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, And and so I feel like I was connecting it to that a little bit where it's just the true meaning of, of the words sometimes are just lost with them because too much time has passed and too many emotions have have traveled between them and they haven't been able to actually just sit down and communicate. And the times that they did, the few times that they actually were together, there was such a strong connection between them. There was, uh, it was almost electrifying. And I think it was those few times that really bound them as almost soulmates. And therefore the time spent apart wasn't as important to all of anyway. It was definitely weighing on William the whole time. Most of his letters have a desperation to them, wishing that she was there, wishing that she had chosen to be with him and that he's trying to respect what she's doing in, in her life and her lifestyle. You know, I mean, she was pretty modern, I would say, for the time. She had gone to college. She had gone to graduate school. She was teaching at a university level. And she also was just not interested in marriage and having children and holding up in the home like most women were doing at that time. Do you get the sense that their relationship was ever consummated that it was a physical relationship or it was a relationship of emotion and spirit Mm, I've thought so much about this Diana (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that I actually do think they had somewhat of a physical relationship. I do. And I don't know how physical. I'll leave that to your imagination. But I think there was definitely something because he, he actually remarks on some of those things. Uh, he's he's quite almost carnal sometimes. <laughs> and, I mean, he's romantic, but it's a little like sloppy sometimes, his romanticism. And he was 20 years older than her. And so these letters, they start, he's in his early 50s. And by the last letter, I mean, he's in his 70s, which is really interesting to me too. And this, this story starts, she's in her early 30s and, uh, and she doesn't marry until she's in her 50s, you know? And so... I think that they did have some kind of physical relationship. But like I said, I, I'm not quite sure exactly <laughs> exactly what that consisted of. But I know that he has stated in some of these letters that he was really missing her and lacking that physical intimacy. Mm. You know, he, he, he was needing that physical intimacy. Talk to me about your production. This is a multimedia performance featuring live music by Gabe Meyer and projection art by Chelsea Myers from Tiny Attic Productions. What was your creative direction for them? How much were they involved in the research process? Not a whole lot. I mean, I planted seeds and then one day I actually brought Chelsea to archives with me so she could get footage of some of these books and uh, we pulled out big beautiful atlases so she could get footage and, and photos. She took photos of the letters and the envelopes even. The envelopes were kind of a work of art in their own right. The fact that all of these things have just been kept and they're pristine. They're just really, I mean, they have like the natural wear and tear of age. But I mean, for 100 years old, <laughs> these letters look mm. pretty amazing. So she was able to capture a lot of the, the raw material, really. And then that is what she's animating and also using for her projection art. So she she definitely got excited about the story once she was in the space with these living objects that were actually like held and cried upon at one, <laughs> one time <laughs> by these by these real people because it's it's easy to talk about someone from the past and and have a disconnect and I think for me it didn't really you know I was reading a lot of these letters that were transcribed thank goodness because William's handwriting was atrocious <laughs> and so they they had archivists who were trained to read just his writing and they were able to transcribe these letters for me, type them up and send them to me so I could actually read them. And they did a remarkable job. I mean, some they can't make out everything. There are some gaps here and there. But I think the day that I went and I found in one of the envelopes, I found a little piece of paper that was folded up. It said 1915 to Olive from William. And I opened it up and it just had some pressed flowers inside. And I just started to weep <laughs> because the woman I was with, Heather Richmond, who's been working with me on this project in, in the archives there, she said, oh, I've never even seen that. I've never even pulled that out of there. I've never looked at that before. And, um, and then she said, don't weep on the flowers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't get emotional on the material. Um, yeah. So that to me, that was one of those moments where I just really felt Olive's heart beating and her fleshing out and becoming this this real this real person with these real emotions and and this real 
independent spirit. It was it was exciting. It was really exciting. I know for you, the music in any of your productions is really critical. You're very, very intentional about the music you choose. So for this, what were you thinking musically? Yeah, well, you're correct. Music is always, and I think I've said this to you before, music is always where I start when I start working on a, a piece, whether it's I'm writing it or it's a piece of theater that or a, a play that exists but that I'm going to start a process with. I knew that I wanted live music to accompany this just because of the style that we were performing in it. I wanted everything to be right there living and breathing in the space with the audience. And to me, live music heightens the emotions, you know, a little bit more than canned music. And Gabe is such a fantastic performer. He was kind of the perfect person to accompany this piece. He does a lot of classic Americana music. He has some really fabulous old timey guitars and he indulges in music history as well. So when I proposed the project to him and told him a little bit about the piece and the the time period he was on board and and super excited to to dig in. So he's been working on putting together his set list but also he's going to play pre-show so he'll kind of give like a mini concert for the half an hour before the show starts and then he'll be playing interludes throughout the piece and and I just knew that he would get it. He would get what we were what we were trying to do with this. What felt the most critical to you in excavating and presenting this story? Oh, man. Last night, I actually said to Ian Sobule, who's also performing in the piece, I told him that I was worried that Olive is going to come across as unlikable. And it was something that I just kind of, I'd been thinking about a little bit, but I just realized it last night, I think, when we were working on a specific section And then he and I discussed it a little bit, and I think I answered my own question, but I decided that she's a complex character, and she was fighting against a lot of norms for the time. And the fact that she, well, my all of any way, is forthright about the fact that she doesn't want to have the lifestyle that is thrust upon most women of that time period. She wants more. And so I don't really care whether people like her or not, although people do need to empathize, right? You have to empathize with these characters Mm. in order to go on the journey with them. And so it's important that we are able to tell this story and not necessarily, it's not that I don't want people to, hmm, how do I put this? Basically, she's a human being. There are parts to her that are incredibly intriguing and likable. And there are other parts that are probably going to disturb you a little bit. And that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But that's probably been the challenge for me is the parts that I've had creative liberties with are the things that, you know, that we don't know that I have to kind of fill in. Mm. Those are challenging, but incredibly exciting, too. You mentioned Ian Sobiel, who's acting with you in this production. Is he playing William? So Ian's actually not playing William, which is kind of fun. He's actually playing like a very like neutral character, almost like an assistant, like a researcher, almost like a grad student or something. And I really didn't think it was important to have an actual physical 
body playing William because we have so much of his words in it. But there's a gentleman in town. I'm sure you know who he is. He's, uh, he's one of the very few British men in town. But his name is Tarek, Tarek Shaw. Do you know him? Oh, yeah, yeah. So he actually lent his voice and we, we recorded him reading a couple of the letters. And so those will play as voiceovers in the piece. And it's very greenhouse. It's a very greenhouse show. So it's very, it's physical theater, you know, a lot of different things going on, but ultimately the storytelling is at the forefront. Well, you have already inspired me to read her books. So you've already won one fan. (laughs) So there you go. Greenhouse Theatre Project's production of Mo Love, Letters from the Archive, will be performed at the State Historical Society of Missouri on Elm Street in Columbia for two nights only, next week on Thursday the 17th and Friday the 18th of November. To find out more, go to greenhousetp.org and Elizabeth. I am so looking forward to seeing you and Ian Sobuel bring Olive and William to life. Thank you for sharing some of their story with us and for making time to chat. Thank you so much, Diana. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest this evening, poet Barbara Harris Leonard and Greenhouse Theatre Project director, actor and playwright Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri. Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.